ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته والحمد لله We begin by praising Allah سبحانه وتعالى the one and the unique it is He alone that we worship and it is His blessings that we seek. He is the Lord of the oppressed and He answers the dua of the weak. As to what follows, today is our usual Q&A and I'm going to uh, begin with uh, a very difficult and awkward question. Uh, over the last uh, two weeks, I have been inundated with uh, questions about my thoughts regarding the political developments in a particular Muslim land where Western forces have withdrawn and the government that aspires to rule by the Sharia has taken over. Now initially I have declined to comment, uh, but uh, the, the incessant uh, messages and emails and Facebook uh, messages and Twitter comments and YouTube comments even, uh, all asking me to comment and wanting to know my thoughts, uh, I feel compelled to answer. However, I will answer generically without mentioning the country by name for reasons that should be obvious and also to extrapolate more benefits so that inshallah ta'ala the generic thoughts that I share uh, will be useful not just for this particular scenario, you know, this uh, lecture is being given in August of 2021. Allah knows how many more, you know, years uh, people will be listening to these lectures. And I want to comment in a way that other incidents, maybe somebody's living, uh, listening 10 years, 20 years, maybe even 50 years from now, that inshallah ta'ala, the comments that I give today will reflect generic benefits for multiple scenarios and not just specifically to this one particular incident that has happened uh, in this particular month. Uh, of this particular year. So I ask Allah for tawfiq and hidayah. It's a very, very awkward question and that is why I hesitated to respond. But uh, inshallah ta'ala, uh, I hope there is khair and barakah and benefit uh, in what I'm about to say. And if what I say is correct, it is from Allah. And if it is incorrect, then it is from myself and the whisperings of shaitan. My response will center around five points. The first point, I must begin by mentioning that I find it very problematic. I'm frankly very troubled by a very common sentiment amongst our religious folk that our scholarship, that our ulama, that our clergy are the best political commentators. One of the main points that I have continued to drive home in all of my Q&A is that people should ask the specialists of their own specialities and that those who are specialized should stick to their own areas of expertise and i would venture that one of our one of our problems not the biggest problem not a major problem but it is definitely a problem is that large segments of the religious community, and by religious I mean those that are overall practicing and praying and masjid going and, and, and enthused about you know uh, the sciences of religion, and we thank Allah for them and for that you know sentiment. But those that are so religiously inclined because they're so attracted to their ulama and scholars and they listen to them and they look up to them, is that they feel that their scholars are qualified on all fronts and in matters that 
uh, are beyond the areas of expertise. And I say this frankly as somebody who has trained amongst ulama and is considered by some to be them, even though I'm always gonna say I'm a student of knowledge, a minor student of knowledge, but as somebody who's been with ulama for 25 years of my life, who's associated with them, uh, who you know uh, uh, considers them to be still my mentors and peers and, and look up to them and, and with that community, I say this loudly and clearly, that specialists in Islamic sciences are specialists in Islamic sciences. They are not specialists in fields outside of those sciences. We are all human beings, all of us, no matter how much we've studied, we remain human. And that means we have our strengths and we have our weaknesses. We have our areas of expertise, we have our areas of ignorance. Just because one of us has studied tafsir, or seerah, or fiqh, or aqidah, or uh, any science of, of Islam, it doesn't mean that that person is more qualified to speak about uh, uh, psychiatry, or uh, investment, you know, or uh, even political analysts than people that are trained in those areas. In fact, let me state that generally speaking, not just clergy, religious folks overall, are not the best suited for political office and political institutions simply because religion by its nature is ideal and idealistic. Religious folks are idealists. They're accustomed to piety and purity in their leaders and they should be. Politics is not idealism. Politics is compromise. Politics is the least of many evil solutions. Politics is dirty business. And therefore the world of ilm and ulama and the world of running countries and, and politicians has historically never been the same other than the time of the Khulafa al-Rashidun. And that's why we idealize those 30, 40 years of our entire ummah. Otherwise, throughout the Umayyas and Abbasids, throughout all of the rise and fall of all of of these dynasties. Politicians were one group of people and ulama and clergy were another group and it is rare to find a merging between those two. Let politicians be politicians, let ulama be, be ulama and let the tensions between them be clear because religion should be idealistic and politics is far from that. In fact, dare I say that when ulama and scholars get involved in politics, usually it's not a very nice business. You know, look at a, a land where pharaohs once roamed and where perhaps many pharaohs still roam. We would much rather that the scholarship of that country had not gotten involved uh, and uh, justified what these mini pharaohs do. So my, my, my first point, this is all a part of the first point, is that I want to explicitly reiterate what our Prophet ﷺ advised us 14 centuries ago in the hadith narrated by our mother Aisha that she said, أَمَرَنَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَن نُنَزِّلَ النَّاسَ مَنَازِلَهُمْ That the Prophet ﷺ commanded us that we put people in their appropriate places. We put people in their appropriate places. Ask doctors about medicine. Ask ulama about the ilm of Islam and the Quran and the Sunnah. Ask psychiatrists about human psychiatry. But when you ask a person who's not a specialist of something outside of his area of speciality, then take it with the grain of salt. Now, I begin with this first point, and for sure one of you is already going to comment or think, hold on a sec. You are saying that, are you saying, sorry, are you saying that uh, people of knowledge should never talk about uh, politics? And I respond, no, I didn't say that. I simply said that to equate uh, the scholarship of a, a scholar 
with his views on politics is the problem. So, brutally honest and very frank, when I speak insha'Allah about the Quran, about the Sunnah, about the seerah of the Prophet when I give you my personal opinion about a fatwa, I genuinely uh, believe that that's coming from years of research. It means something. It's not coming out of thin air. This is, I ask Allah Azza for tawfiq and for hidayah and for ikhlas, but when any scholar gives a verdict or an opinion, it is based upon years of research. It's based upon background information that takes a long time to acquire. It's not coming out of thin air. However, when I speak about the situation in this land or that land, when I talk about the political parties in here and there, it's not coming from the same area of expertise. And therefore, if I were to say something about politics or about current affairs or about situations that are dealing with uh, a particular incidents of a modern time, then what I am saying is not as authoritative, if you like, as what I might say about the Quran and about the Sunnah. So, am I allowed to speak about other issues? Of course I am, just like you're allowed. And you know, politics is an area where everybody talks. I'm allowed to talk, you're allowed to talk. I'm allowed to hold opinions, you're allowed to hold opinions. However, what I'm saying is that when a religious person, when a person of ilm, when a person of knowledge says something about a political analysis, Please do not take it with the same level of authority that you would take that person's fatwa or fiqh from. You will take it as you will take any other opinion from any other person. It's not any more binding. So understand what I'm saying here. I will continue to talk about politics because I like politics. I read a lot and I, 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 I talk a lot about these issues. However, my analysis is not any much greater or better than anybody else's just because I've studied the Quran and the Sunnah. Now, I've said this to one of the brothers who came to me in our community and I kind of, you know, made this point and he goes, uh, okay, you know, I agree with all of this point, you know, but in the end of the day, am I not allowed to know your opinion? I mean, I'm curious. Okay, I agree with your caveats. I agree with your disclaimers that it's not a fatwa you're giving about that land. You're not giving me a, a, a verdict about that group and that party. But the brother said to me, this is what he said to me, that, you know, I consider you to be more well-read than myself and I respect your analysis overall. So I just want to know your opinion, like I want to know the opinion of anybody who might have read more than me. And that's a valid point. So as long as that caveat is understood, that an opinion of a scholar remains an opinion. It's not binding, it's not a fatwa, it's it's not a verdict, it's not, it's, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the authority of ilm just because an alim says it about a political issue. And if you disagree or if you reject, no big deal. It's just an opinion. So as long as you have that caveat on understanding, then I don't have any problems, you know, sharing with you some generic uh, points or comments that I have. And that's gonna then allow me to move on to the, uh, the next point out of our five points. So the second point, still speaking about overall uh, politics and talking about politics. When it comes to political analysis, when it comes to taking sides, when it comes to holding a position about a current affair, about which party, which bill to support, about which tactic or whatnot, this is not an issue, generally speaking, of haram and halal. It's not an issue of haqq and batil, generally speaking. In reality, it's hardly ever a black and white issue. In the time of the Sahaba when the civil war broke out between Aisha radiallahu anha and Ali radiallahu anha, between Muawiyah radiallahu anha and Ali radiallahu anha, when those civil wars broke out, you had people of piety in all of those camps. 
Piety transcends politics. Piety transcends political divisions. And it is very, very likely that on any given stance or any current event, you will find people arguing and bickering and disagreeing. And the both of them are people of Jannah and will end up in Jannah. In this world, they might even go to war as the Sahaba did. May Allah have mercy on all of them. Their disagreements might be extreme, but they are sincere in their own views. And they think they're doing this for the betterment of the Ummah. As long as their niyyah is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they genuinely think that this tactic or this group will be better for the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if that's their worldview, even if they're mistaken in their analysis, they are forgiven in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so just because somebody supports one side uh, against another in any modern political scenario of any Muslim land of any country, as long as the both of them want to support the deen of Allah. Now again, I'm not talking about, by the way, if one group says, I don't want to support Allah and His Messenger, a'udhu billah, a'udhu billah. If one group says that, or if one person says that I don't want the laws of Allah and I don't want uh, uh, the Sharia of Allah. That's clear cut that this might potentially be kufr or even be uh, kufr. But we're not talking about somebody about that. We're, we're talking about somebody who says, no, no, this particular uh, uh, group, uh, this particular group, it's not manifesting the Sharia. This particular group, it's not applying the Sharia properly. If somebody feels that, rejecting a group of humans who claim to be applying the Sharia, is not the same as rejecting the Sharia if you believe that that group is not applying the Sharia. I hope my, my point is clear here, is that when it comes to political ikhtilafat, and I say this as somebody who has very clear stances in many uh, Muslim lands and cases that have happened where I believe that uh, you know one side is, is definitely wrong and the other side is definitely right. And yet I am aware that there are scholars whom I love and I know are sincere on the other side. And they support a particular regime or a particular government or a particular rulership. And I am not, uh, you know, generally I'm not somebody who's uh, uh, ever been a blind supporter or, or flag bearer of any of these regimes or, or kingdoms. And I, I find myself always in the opposing camp, but I'm not blind to the reality that there are pious ulama who genuinely think that the lesser of two evils is to be with uh, the supporting uh, you know, uh, regime or government or whatnot, and they think that that will be better for the ummah. As long as their niyyah is for the ummah, and as long as their loyalty is to Allah and His Messenger, and not to a kursi or to an individual. And you can tell, by the way, by the language, and by the stances, and by their track record. It's very clear. There are those people who will go with the flow, and go with the money, and go with the power. And those people have sold themselves for a measly price. But there are those who might support the kursi, but not because of the kursi. They support it because they think the kursi, by kursi I mean the current political political establishment. They think that that is better for the ummah. That is an interpretation. And that's exactly what happened in the time of the civil wars between the Sahaba. Why were pious people on all sides? Because pious people thought this is best. No, this is best. No, this is best. And each one thought that one is best. And Allah Azza wa will judge them based upon their intention. So my second point here is that we have to be very, very careful about considering our opponents 
to be evil people as long as those opponents love Allah and His Messenger and want the religion of Allah to benefit. I'm not talking about somebody who says, I don't want the deen of Allah. That person is not somebody I'm even discussing in this regard. That is almost a rejection or it might even be a rejection if somebody literally says, I don't want the religion of Allah. That's really a rejection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. But if somebody says, I'm just giving an example. If somebody says, I love Allah and His Messenger, of course I want to benefit the deen. But this group that you support, I think they will harm the deen. I think they're going to be detrimental to the religion. That's their analysis. You might disagree, but you have to understand that the person who disagrees with you is not an evil person necessarily, or a kafir, or a dal, or a mubtadi' or whatnot. So politics is a tricky business, and politics is not black and white, and supporting political parties, and supporting current events, and disagreeing about the best analyses of this, these events should not lead to us considering the people on the other side to be necessarily evil people. As long as, as, as I said, their faith remains to, to want to uh, uh, benefit the religion and their loyalties remain to Allah and His Messenger. The only person whom if you oppose him, you are instantaneously evil in a kafir is the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's the only person. Even amongst the Sahaba, there were those who opposed Ali radiallahu anhu. There were those who were on the other side of Aisha radiallahu anha. Did that make them evil? There were people on the side of Muawiyah, on the side of Ali, on the side of Aisha, all of them praying to Hajjud, loving Allah and His Messenger. There were scholars on all of these sides. That was their analysis. If that happened during the lifetime of the Sahaba, do you think in these gray areas where there are politicians of all stripes on all sides, that the issue is crystal clear? Not at all. And if anybody thinks this, then frankly, their understanding of reality and of human history uh, and of politics is, is, is not very uh, profound and deep, Allah ta'ala. So the second point I wanna uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, mention here is that even if somebody analyzes, even if somebody does you know, uh, pontificate about these and is very passionate allow room for disagreement and understand that your opponent in a political view is not necessarily an evil or a bad person. Uh, the third uh, point that uh, I want to bring up about these uh, difficult issues out of the five points that I'm going to mention is that we also have to be aware that our knowledge and our assessment of the situation is as good and as credible as our sources. And our sources are only as good as what we ourselves want to trust. And what we want to trust is generally speaking going to ally with and be in sync with our own preconceived biases. What do I mean by this? I mean by this all of us have to be aware of what we call confirmation bias. Look it up if you don't know what it is and that is that you selectively take bits of information that you already want to believe and that reinforces your pre-existing belief. And this especially applies to those of us who are speaking about issues from 5,000 miles away on the other side of the world. And it applies to those of us that are not ethnically from a particular region. We don't have family and friends over there. We've never lived over there. We should humble ourselves to our limited scope of knowledge. All of us are speaking from somewhat a position of luxury, a distant view, a bird's eye view, not a first-hand view. 
We don't know who to trust about each news item. Each one of us, including myself, has our echo chambers because we hear what our friends and colleagues tell to us and our friends and colleagues generally sympathize with us in the first place. That's why there are friends and colleagues. Therefore, if you're with the far right and your Facebook is full of far right and your colleagues are all far right, don't be surprised when you get one skewed image of that land or of any land. And if you are a person who is sympathetic to the, 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 the regime or the people in charge and you want to get the good news about them, then don't be surprised when your friends and your Facebook colleagues and whatnot are forwarding you the snippets that talk about the positives. And perhaps the truth lies in between those two. My point being that, my, my third point is that we should not be so, so arrogant as to presume that we actually know what is going on when we are so far away and we are not connected directly directly to the circumstances. Who really knows what is going on? Those who want to have a negative view will find plenty of quotes and stories that reinforce that image. And those who want to get a positive view will also find plenty to get that positive view. So be vigilant against confirmation bias and understand that our uh, knowledge of the situation is only as good as our sources. And our sources are generally speaking, uh, sources that we already are inclined towards. So there's somewhat of an echo chamber being created in all of our little bubbles and lives. And it is a little bit healthy to be honest to step into other echo chambers and see what is going on because sometimes the truth transcends any one little echo chamber uh, bubble. So be careful because your analysis of the situation is going to be based upon the facts that you believe. And the facts that you believe is going to be based upon the sources that you trust. And the sources that you trust is going to be based upon your own preconceived biases. And so very likely your analysis is confirming your preconceived biases. It's a vicious loop and cycle. Just be aware of this. And sometimes it is healthy to listen to other perspectives just to understand where they're coming from and just to think about maybe some aspects of your own understanding you know, might be flawed. And in the end of the day, it's very difficult to really transcend our own human biases. So these are my uh, first um, uh, three points that I have. Uh, now we get to another uh, very uh, interesting point. And you realize, by the way, that's why I said my answer will be generic. Most of you wanted a specific haqq and batil and right and wrong. And I'm trying to explain to you the world doesn't work that way. Political analysis doesn't work that way. It's far more difficult than what we think. And perhaps in these words, inshallah ta'ala, there's some food for thought and rumination and contemplation, which is really what uh, I want all of us to, to get to. Now, this leads me to perhaps my longest uh, uh, point over here. And that is that <clears throat> what people have been asking me is about uh, this group's understanding of human rights and the Sharia and women's rights and what's gonna happen. And this is where it was troubling for me to see how easy it was to absorb a set of questions and a set of problems that are not coming from within our own uh, paradigm. I advise all of us to not get caught up and become a pawn in a game that was not invented by us, and it is not being played by us, and in reality it is being played against us. Our Prophet ﷺ said, لا يكن أحدكم إمعه. 
يقول أنا مع الناس إن أحسن الناس أحسنت وإن أساء وإن أساء وأسأت ولكن وطنوا أنفسكم إن أحسن الناس أن تحسنوا وإن أساء فلا تظلموا إن ريبورتد تلميذي Our Prophet system said I'll translate يعني the the meaning of it Don't be a blind fool don't be like a leaf in the wind. If the people do good, he'll say, I'll follow the people. If they do good, he follows them. If they do bad, he follows them. No, strengthen yourselves, fortify yourselves, anchor yourselves. If the people do good and they speak good, then be with them. But if the people don't speak and don't do good, then don't do wrong. My point is, a lot of our brothers and sisters are getting caught up in questions and concerns that are not emanating from people of piety and integrity, but rather emanating from people who want to play a very, very vicious game. What do I mean by this? I'm gonna have to go into a little bit of a detail and tangent here. We are being told by the media and by uh, our politicians and by many Western countries that there is a great concern for the people of that country, for the human rights of that country, for the women of that country. Now. Before I move on, on a personal level, I will tell you honestly, I too am concerned about some of these things, about what views this particular group might have of the Sharia and if their policies might potentially backfire. We all know that if you're too harsh on the people, that if you're too strict on the people and not, they're not ready for that strictness, they might end up rejecting and rebelling. And in rejecting you, a'udhu billah, some might end up rejecting aspects of Allah's sharia. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu famously remarked, speak to the people at their level. Otherwise, you might end up causing them to reject Allah and His Messenger. If this is mere speech, what do you think about policies and politics? If you're too strict with the people and they're not ready for it, you might cause them to reject what they should not reject because of your foolishness. So at some level, I am actually concerned myself about some of these questions. And those in charge of any Muslim land need to be wise and gradual, even those that want to implement the Sharia and start with the larger issues. The most important issue is civic security. The most important issue is safety. The most important issue is the security of all of the people there. They need to feel free and safe. And then after that, they need to have houses and food and shelter. This is far more important than implementing the tertiary issues of modesty and of dress code, or even the gray areas of what type of entertainment is allowed and not. So yes, I as well have some concerns. However, and listen to me carefully, dear Muslims, my concerns as a Muslim do not blind me to the reality of the sheer hypocrisy of this incessant chatter about human rights and women's rights by a group that cares nothing about human rights and women's rights. The same entities, our own countries of America and Europe, our own countries of NATO, have invaded and bombed and destroyed this country for almost two decades. The United States of America, my country, the one that we live in, has dropped, and I calculated today and I looked up today, 81,638 bombs 
on this particular country, a country that is one of the most underdeveloped in the world, where people are living as if almost they're living 500 years ago, a country that has no military, no navy, it doesn't have any air force, almost 100,000 bombs were dropped in the last 20 years. A country uh, that, that, that was invaded, and the invading troops were directly involved in the massacres of tens of thousands of people. We don't even know how many people were killed because the same country that is claiming championing uh, human rights. That same country has absolutely no idea how many people were killed. Do you know why? Because they announced as public policy that they wouldn't even count the number of civilian deaths that their own bombs caused because they couldn't care. You're talking to me about human rights? You didn't even care about the humanity of the people whom you bombed. Where was human rights back then? The same country that is talking about women's rights and wondering about women's rights, we now know for a fact that they supported, uh, they supported uh, the, 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 the types of warlords and the types of mafias that were well known for engaging in child soldiers and in child rapes and in something called Bachabazi, well known in that part of the world. This same country that is talking about women's rights publicly supported those mafias and warlords that were rampantly guilty of that type of abuse. What happened to women's rights at that point in time? So really, it is distressing to see so many of our righteous brothers and sisters not understand the tactic, the screen tactic. It is a tactic of the boy who cried wolf to bring attention to a false reality. Or one can say it is an intentional red herring tactic. Do you know what a red herring tactic is? is it is a tactic to draw attention away from what you should be paying attention to, to something you should not be paying attention to. That's what a red herring is, that you bring it into an argument, you bring it into a debate, so that you draw your attention away from something that you should to something that you shouldn't. It is an intentional and deceitful tactic. And frankly, it is a Fir'aunic tactic. Fir'aun was the one who mastered and invented this tactic, perhaps even. Because when Musa comes to Fir'aun, and Musa walks into the Fir'aun's palace, right? Uh, Fir'aun says to, to Musa, Fir'aun says to Musa, who are you to come back to me after we raised you in our own palace and you committed the murder that you did? You know, remember the punch that Musa gave uh, to the uh, to the, uh, uh, the the Qipti, the punch that he gave and that Qipti died. And so Fir'aun says to Musa that who are you to come to us? We were the ones who raised you and nurtured you. And how did Musa respond? Fir'aun is telling Musa, what an irony. Fir'aun is telling Musa, you are a kafir. You are a, 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 a rejector or an ungrateful person. And uh, Musa responds, indeed, you're right, I did this mistake. And I made a mistake and I fled from you because I was fearful of you. Then Allah Azza wa Jal brought me back to you. And then he said, You are considering it a favor that you raised me 
after you enslaved the entire Israelites, a hundred thousand people, you killed them, massacred them, enslaved them. And then you say, oh, but I'm worried about you. I took care of you. Don't give me your, you know, uh, half-baked uh, 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 confessions or uh, your uh, claims of wanting to protect or care. You don't care about humanity. You don't care about the children of Israel. You took care of me, but you bombed and killed. Well, you did, Firaun didn't bomb, but he massacred tens of thousands of people. And this is the reality of our own lands vis-a-vis -vis this country that we are uh, talking about. I don't want to go too deep right now and not because I'm worried of anything, but because of time. But what many people don't understand, I do have to summarize a little bit, brothers and sisters, because some people, they, they, they are not understanding why these questions are being raised of human rights and women's rights and whatnot and the burqa and all that. They don't understand the, 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 the reality of why these series of questions is being drudged out and constantly paraded in the media. What is happening, dear brothers and sisters, is that a vicious game has been played. It's already been played, it's already done. A vicious game has been played, the game of war. And it was a game that was done not for religion, not for human rights, not for women's rights, not to free women from the burqa, not even for democracy, not even for Western civilization. All of this is not correct. No, this game was played because of money. Simple as that. Greed for money. In a nutshell, very briefly so that we understand. In a nutshell, our country of America raises almost 35 trillion dollars in taxes annually. Do you know how much a trillion is? Do you know how much a trillion is? A trillion is a million millions. A trillion is a million millions. It's just words, our minds go blank. We can't even envision how much is a trillion. There is no trillionaire yet on earth. This government raises 3.5 trillion dollars every single year in taxes. Now, that is a huge pile of money. People are greedy for that money. Politicians who control, they, they, they can't just dig into that money and put it into their pockets. That would be against, that would be blatant stealing. They can't do that. So what do they do? Greedy politicians figure out a way how to tap in to that massive treasure chest of $3.5 trillion. What do they do? One of the tactics that has worked very well for the last few decades is to declare war on a country. War is profitable for some groups of people. It comes at a cost. Some people die, lots of people die, but some people become very, very wealthy. War is profitable for thousands of politicians and thousands of companies. Why? Because when you go to war, what happens? The government has to purchase weapons. It has to purchase bedding and material and cloth. It has to purchase food. It has to purchase everything. So the government has to enact uh, treaties, or not treaties, sorry. Uh, the government has to make purchases from private corporations that are producing for the government. And these corporations are going to supply the military and to supply the contractors in the countries that are being invaded. And of course, they're going to overcharge. This is well known. The contractors have no oversight. It's going to overcharge. So uh, well known, there was an article uh, about some of these the examples of overcharging. For example, a screw uh, might cost 20 cents and the contractor will charge the government 
$20 for a nail. You know a nail you will get in your local store for 20 cents, the contractor will charge $20 for that particular nail. What's gonna happen? The government writes checks for millions of dollars to these corporations. And lots of people become very wealthy. When they become wealthy, they will reward the politicians who made them wealthy. As well, the politicians have direct contacts with the corporations. So the politicians become wealthy directly by making those corporations wealthy. And perhaps the most obvious and blatant example was our uh, former Vice President Cheney himself, who was the chairman and CEO of Halliburton from 1995 to 2000. Do you know our Vice President Dick Cheney had a severance package from Halliburton that was close to $36 million. $36 million he was awarded when he went into uh, the government service. And then what happened? He declared war on Iraq and Halliburton was awarded a $7 billion contract in which only Halliburton had the right to bid for that contract. One man bid, one show. It bid and it got it and no questions asked. Do you not see what is going on here? The politician gets rich and the company he works for gets rich and where does that money come from? From my taxes and your taxes. So the fact of the matter is those who vote for war don't care about human rights. They don't care about the burqa. They don't care about democracy. They don't even care about American lives or Iraqi lives or Afghani lives. They care about money. And the tactic to go to war is to access that money and put it into their pockets and the pockets of their constituents. But see, there's one problem. It's a big problem. That money has to be justified to the people who gave it. That's me and you, that's the taxpayers. How do you justify the people paying that money? Because in the end of the day, if you don't justify, then the people who gave that money will vote you out of office because you're not spending that money for my children's school. You're not spending that money for healthcare. Healthcare is still not free. You're not spending that money for inner cities. We have so many problems in this country and we are spending trillions of dollars in war. Six trillion dollars were spent uh, on, in our false invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Six trillion dollars. Can you imagine if that money were to be spent over here? This is where the narrative is created. The story is drawn and the lie is sold. One of the greatest political thinkers of our times, Noam Chomsky, he calls this manufactured consent. You manufacture consent. People think that they are giving you consent, but it is not real consent. What is the narrative or the lie that is created? You see the guy working in the factory, who is paying his taxes, working nine to five, whose son is gonna join the army, you can't tell the factory worker that you're going to war to make his boss rich while he remains where he is because the middle class doesn't gain at all. It's only the, the, the rich that gains, the CEOs, is the business owners. You can't tell the factory worker that he's gonna send his kid to die in a war so that his boss gets rich. That's not the lie you can sell the factory worker. So what do you do? You tell that honest, hardworking worker that you're the good guy. You're a nice person, you're a patriot. And those guys over there, they speak a different language, they dress different than you, they're the bad guys, they're gonna kill you, they're all terrorists. You defame them, you dehumanize them, you make their religion look evil, you make fun of their practices, their cultures, their holy book, their sharia, and even their prophet You frighten your own people by creating a monster out of those people, a bogeyman. And when they're frightened, they're like, what am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? 
You come along as the politician, as the government, you say, don't worry, I shall protect you. The same person who created the myth of the enemy and made you into an innocent, you know, uh, patriot, that same person will say, don't worry, I shall defend you. Just allow me to do with your taxes as I please. Your son shall go and he shall fight not on behalf of the CEOs, for his country. He's not fighting for his country, he's fighting for the rich. He shall fight for his country. When the son comes back in a casket, he shall be given false honors and a medal and a flag and whatnot. And the, the, the innocent worker will feel proud, my son died for my country. He didn't die for the country. Those people that were killed in those lands would never have hurt or harmed you. They don't even know of your existence. But the profit has gone, you know, the profits meaning the money has gone to the CEOs. So you create this narrative. What is the narrative? Those guys are evil. They mistreat their women. They're barbaric. Sharia is bad. They're gonna behead. They're gonna put the burqa. We have to save those women. You create this myth. They don't care about human rights. What human rights are they caring about when their own bombs have killed 100,000 people? What women's rights are they caring about when their own troops have plundered and raped? So please spare me this drama of pretending to care about human rights and women's rights. But you see, unfortunately, us Muslims, we're also absorbing the same media. And so many of us fall prey to the same lies as well. And many of us start thinking the same way. Oh, those poor people and human rights and whatnot. And as I said in the beginning of this point, at some level, I too am concerned about some of these groups and how they're gonna do that. But my concern is stemming from a very, very different paradigm. I'm not going to be a pawn in a game that is based on hedonistic, capitalistic, neocon principles. And even if I have my concerns, they're coming from a faith-based to another faith-based and not because of a capitalist agenda that wishes to paint a picture that is very different than reality. So I hope that this point is clear, dear brothers and sisters, that before you jump on this bandwagon of questioning, 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 question the questions. Ask yourself, where are these questions coming from? Ask yourself, why are you being spoon-fed these questions at this point in time by a very group that has gone against the principles that they claim to be defending? What human rights can you be talking about when you're the ones that have ravaged this country for the last 20 years? You didn't care about the people or the cultures or the religion or the women. Who are you to come and tell us about human rights and women's rights? So if you wanna ask these questions, ask from your paradigm and don't just jump onto the bandwagon because this is the essence of a red herring. This is the essence of distracting from the far bigger and more important issues so that we ignore the war crimes, we ignore the we ignore the Guantanamos, which is still open as we speak to this day. We ignore all of these and we concentrate on maybe even the mistakes I'm not defending. I have not yet defended, you know, some mistakes that might have occurred. But what are those mistakes in comparison to the mistakes of the other side? It's not even apples and oranges. There is no way you can compete with 100,000 false deaths or 100,000 at least civilians. Again, we don't even know how many civilians died because uh, our government refused to collect statistics on civilians dying. They refused. They didn't allow any agency to do that. It was not allowed to collect statistics. If any party is doing that, they're doing that on their own without any governmental support. But we know that around, as I said, 85,000 uh, bombs
bones were dropped and uh, we know the number of, of soldiers killed uh, from our side and uh, contractors killed from our side which is already in the tens of thousands. So if this is our numbers then the Afghan population and civilians would be in the hundreds of thousands in the very very least. So because of this point number four is very simple don't jump on the bandwagon and be more cautious about parroting lines that are not coming from a script based upon a genuine care of the people of that country. And this leads me to my fifth point. And by the way, I still haven't responded explicitly because of the reasons I have mentioned, but still, generically, let me conclude with this fifth point. Any mainstream group that is affiliated with the religion should have some loyalties and be more beloved to us religiously than a group that doesn't affiliate with the religion. I say mainstream to dissociate myself from terroristic groups and from fringe groups. Overall, any pietistic mainstream group, we make dua for the people of piety, that they are successful and we hope the best for them. But we also point out that piety alone is not enough to rule and that no matter how much taqwa you have that doesn't substitute knowledge of governance and that no matter how much Quran you know in and of itself that is not going to help you your knowledge of tajweed and qiraat is not going to help you in how to run a country and the Sahaba understood this by the way you know when the uh, Sahaba conquered uh, Quds and, and the Byzantine lands, when they conquered uh, the region of the Byzantine Empire and they, they, they increased their, their, their lands, you know, uh, quadruple or fivefold, for the first generation, they did not change the bureaucratic infrastructure of the Byzantine lands. They did not change anything. In fact, the language of government remained uh, ancient Greek, the language of government or Latin, it remained. They did not change because they understood that they can't just come in and change the entire system. They allowed the infrastructure to remain and they became the rulers of that infrastructure. And for an entire generation, the infrastructure remained Byzantium, Byzantine, until Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, one generation later, Abdul Malik ibn, once they had acclimatized, once they understood what's going on, then in the pinnacle of the Umayyad power, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan comes and he Arabicizes the government and he makes the language uh, within the government Arabic and the, 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 the bureaus and the registrars, everything was then adopted by uh, the Muslim community after an entire generation even the Sahaba, and they were infinitely more pious than any current uh, movement or group, understood that when it came to the minutia of governance of these Byzantine lands, let the people do it in their own way, and they were the ones uh, overseeing it. So as we point this out, as we point this out, and again, you know, without mentioning you know, any, country's, uh, any country's name, we wish, you know, the people of all Muslim lands uh, that they live under a sensible rule that allows them to follow the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while protecting the lives and livelihoods of the people living there. We want to see every land flourish and especially Muslim lands. We want to see them flourish while balancing the obligations of their faith with the difficulties of their time. And we never wish any evil or destruction for righteous people by siding with those who despise our faith. 
a flawed and mistaken believer is far more beloved to us than someone who rejects belief in Allah and His Messenger. But merely pointing out that piety is not the same as governance doesn't mean that we're siding with the other side. And if there's any skepticism or concern, then it is stemming from a real and authentic concern that the people of that region love Allah and His Messenger and are not turned away by perhaps the overzealousness of one group of people who are, who are at a different level of Iman and Taqwa and not yet perhaps ready, the population is not yet ready to reach that level of Iman and Taqwa. So even if we bring up certain elements of concern, it comes from a genuine love for the Muslims of that region and for the religion of Islam, and not the false concern that is brainwashed into some of us about the alleged rights of some members of that society. And so these are some generic uh, thoughts and and that inshallah in this generic talk there is benefit for more than just this one particular scenario. So to conclude uh, this rather lengthy discussion, and I hope inshallah there was some benefit here, to reiterate my, my five points. Point number one, don't assume that religious clergy are more qualified to give political analyses than others. And if they do so, take it as if it is their personal opinion and not as if it's coming from their years of training and expertise. My analysis of politics is not the same level as when I tell you uh, a verdict that I believe in about the Quran, the Sunnah, about fiqh, about hadith, about tafsir. That is coming from an area of specialization and expertise. And as for politics, I have the right to hold it. You have the right to hold it. But my view is no more binding on you and rejecting my view. You know, the second point that I have, disagreeing with the political analyses of an alim or of a person doesn't make you a bad person. My, that's my second point. There's politics is a very great area and if you ask 10 people about a political issue and an analysis they'll have 10 different opinions and maybe all 10 of them are people of Jannah so disagreeing about politics as long as your heart is with Allah and His Messenger and your loyalties are to the Ummah it doesn't necessarily make you a bad person the point number three I brought up is that understand your own position of privilege and your own bias of knowledge when you speak about issues far, far away and understand that your analysis and my analysis is going to be affected by our perception of what is happening uh, over there. And the fourth point was a very long discussion of the reality of the dynamics of why some questions are being raised and some concerns are being asked by a group of people who don't have those issues and concerns actually in their hearts. So we need to be careful by becoming blind fools, just jumping on and asking the same questions. Our concerns, even if they are somewhat similar, are not coming from the same paradigm. They're not coming from the same game. We have a totally different agenda and a totally different uh, view and so even if we have certain concerns of this nature it shouldn't be done uh, by siding with a group of people who don't really have those concerns and the final point is that uh, as Muslims we should want good for all Muslim people and really for the entire world and we would love to see a modern viable practical manifestation of the Sharia in any and all Muslim lands and while piety is a very 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 important factor it is not the only factor that brings about political success and yet still we pray for the success of all people of piety and taqwa and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
to bless this ummah with khair and barakah and peace and security and to allow each and every one of us to be a role model for all of those around us. Inshallah with this we come to the end of today's rather lengthy Q&A and until next time, Jazakumullahu khair, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. وَاذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ فِي أَيَّامٍ مَعْدُودَاتٍ فَمَنْ تَعَجَّلَ فِي يَوْمَيْنِ فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ وَمَنْ تَأَخَّرَ فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ لِمَنِ اتَّقَى وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَاعْلَمُوا أنكم إليه تحشرون